You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Uh, My name is Elisa. I'm here in my individual capacity, though I'm a national security lawyer. And our other moderators are Yvette. Hello! And and Nicole. (laughs) Hello. All right. Listen, uh, let's just jump right into it today. So, I am really excited to welcome my friend, Diana Banks. Diana and I are buddies from the Pentagon, but before we met, she was a graduate of Stanford Harvard Law, and uh, she started off doing finance at uh, practice at King & Spalding. So, underachiever. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You know, I don't know how you found your way in here, Diana. Um, huh? but, <laughs> but then you came up to DC, uh, cause you were in King and Spalding in Atlanta. You came up to DC to work for the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisitions. And then you were a, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force and Education Training. You went to a robotic startup. And right now you're senior counsel for the other ABA, the American Bankers Association. Yes. And I am also here in my personal capacity. So let me just say that. Everybody. Everybody's here in their personal <laughs> capacity. So welcome. Thank you. So the reason we invited you, Diana, is really you have such an interesting career. We could talk about that later. But we really wanted to focus today on your acquisitions experience. We did a lot of podcasts last year about um, private national security law, and we want to think some some more about the military and government. So thanks for kicking off that segment. Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I started my career in the Pentagon working for the Assistant Secretary of the Army for what's called Acquisition Logistics and Technology. Uh, and that's basically the part of the Army that's responsible for uh, developing and procuring the weapons that warfighters use to fight the fight. Um, it's also the acquisition writ large uh, is governed by DOD Instruction 5000, and it's supposedly a three-part process. Um, it's the overall process of buying things, and then what's called requirements, which is the front-end determination of what you're going to buy, and then obviously the funding piece, which is how you pay for it. Um, and so... Each of the services, which are, as you know, the branches of the military, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, each have their own acquisition branches, as well as DOD as a whole at the OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense level, has acquisition branches as well. And so it's a pretty complicated and convoluted process. Uh, I'm actually glad I started my career there. It was a pretty good introduction into how the building worked um, and maybe sometimes doesn't work together um, in terms of achieving that larger mission. Can you just help us understand, just very baseline, what the Army's peacetime mission is? Because the Army doesn't actually itself send troops to fight overseas. Correct. So, you know, one of the interesting things about the Department of Defense is the way it's organized is very complicated. It is what, you know... organizational behaviors like to call cross-matrix organization. So, yes, the Army, along with the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines, all send service members or troops or soldiers or whatever you might want to call them to the combatant commands or the COCOMs, as they're known for short. And the COCOMs are the ones who actually carry out the warfighting mission. So in peacetime, the institutional Army is focused on 
you know, basically preparing itself for the next fight. And it's supposed to be very forward looking and thinking about, okay, well, how are we going to be fighting in the future? It's the job of the COCOMs to fight the fight now. It's the job of the institutional services to plan for the future. And you described a little bit about acquisitions But as a clarifying question, how are acquisitions different from contracts? Sure. So as I mentioned before, acquisition is just the part of the process separate from requirements and funding. Um, But acquisition is supposed to be the process of deciding, you know, well, what what do we want to get and what are we going to buy? And so it's different from contracting because contracting is really the mechanics of buying stuff. Um, so it's the accounting, it's the dealing with invoices, dealing with the contractors directly, disbursements. Acquisition is more strategic, you know, it, it, because it involves the requirements and the funding. And so a really rough analogy would be like saying acquisition is your overall household budget and your savings goals and your retirement goals and what are your mixes of stocks and bonds and your prepare your prepared. Yeah, preparation for the future, right? And contracting would be like, okay, did the mortgage get paid? Did the light bill get paid? Did the mortgage servicer apply my extra payment correctly? That kind of thing. It's much more nitty-gritty. But obviously, given the uh, amounts of money that we're talking about in the defense budget, uh, the contracting folks have uh, access to, you know, a huge amount of funds, uh, and and up until very recent times, a lot less oversight. Um, So that has led to some problems, as you might imagine. So what is the acquisitions budget? What does it look like? So my so I had to look this up before I came in here, but the pres but the presbud as we called it in the building or the president's budget request was 681 billion in FY19. Uh, and I don't think that that includes what's called OCO money or overseas contingency operations, uh, which is money that flows to the co- the combatant commands to carry on, you know, ongoing engagements. Uh, the RDT&E budget, which is the Research Development Test and Evaluation budget, what overall I think was $78 billion in 2017. And sorry, I don't have a 2019 number because those numbers, those requests are all made by service. And you have to go and dig those numbers up and then add them all together, which I just didn't have time to do today. But the numbers tend not to change too much drastically over the years. Um, and one other thing to know is that that's just for what's called RDT&E. Uh, there are four other what we call colors of money. And sometimes if you work in the acquisition world or the contracting world, you'll hear that term, colors of money. Uh, and it basically just refers to how Congress appropriates funds to the Department of Defense and what those funds can be used for. The, de- the department, while the president, through the executive branch, asked for $681 billion, Congress just doesn't dole that out in one big pot. Um, they make it, you know, they hold the purse strings. And so they make it very clear what, how much money can be spent on what. Um, and so the other colors are things like operations and maintenance, O&M, which pays for civilian salaries and other ongoing you know, just what it says, operations and maintenance, mill PERS, which is military personnel salaries, which are separate from civilian salaries, and mill construction, which is obviously building stuff. Uh, and then there's a catch-all, well, I shouldn't call it a catch-all, but another category called procurement, which uh, funds the actual production of acquisition programs. And so that's an interesting delineation because you get one color of money to develop your programs and you get another color of money to actually buy your programs. And so, and you see this theme a lot, there can often be disconnects on that front because you spent a lot of money up front developing this widget and then, you know, leadership change, winds change, or, you know, the environment changes, the threat environment changes, and then you don't have any money on the back end to actually buy this thing that you've developed. Or it tends to happen more in the reverse, which is Congressman X says, 
you've got this procurement money to buy this widget because it's built in the right district, but there's no actual money to build and develop that widget. So you're describing a very complicated organization with a lot of very complicated finances, um, and you alluded to some of the problems that we have. Um, for example, we've all heard about major systems running over budget, right? Um, the refrigerator systems on Air Force One are going to cost $24 million, just the refrigerator systems, and we'll link to the Washington Post um, article that talks about that. Why is everything so expensive when we buy it through the military procurement process, and why is the process so long and complicated? Well, sure. So, you know, there's a couple of, like, answers to that question. So, you know, first, I want to go back to the piece about uh, acquisition is a bigger process than just the buying the stuff, right? So the other two pieces are requirements and funding. And so to illustrate a little something about that, I want to go to the requirements process. And so the requirements process is supposed to be the process on how you decide what we're going to buy. Okay, what does the warfighter need, right? And this is important because, unfortunately, I think Within the Pentagon, there can be some disconnect between the acquisition process and the requirements process. They're run by different parts of the building, uh, particularly... Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, particularly acquisition, which has heavy civilian influence because you've got a lot of engineers and technical types there. And then the requirements process, which is completely driven by the uniform side. Um, and so a good example I can think of that kind of illustrates what we're talking about here was the Army was trying to buy a new ground combat vehicle. And this was something that was in the works for, I think, like literally like a decade when I got to the building and they were still um, still having debates about it. And my understanding of this uh, process, and please, I hope no one <laughs> writes into the podcast to tell me that I'm totally wrong, but that the Army had gone back and forth about, okay, how big should this vehicle be, right? Should it fit like four soldiers? Should it fit the entire nine-man squad? Um, you know, how many people do we want to transport at one time? How much do you sacrifice protection and protection from, you know, you know, survivability from blast versus lightweightness and ability to maneuver, right? These are all kinds of trade-offs that you have to think about um, when you're buying a major weapon system like this. And I think it's interesting because somewhere in this process, in this debate, uh, a really crucial piece of information got lost, which is that over a certain weight, the Army's existing infrastructure could not transport oh, that's a vehicle a of that size. Right. And so... Sorry, you know, we can't get it on the plane to right, take it to the theater. We can't, right. We can't get it. We can't... The logistics scale can't handle it, right? We can't tow it. We can't get it there. We can't get it to the battlefront. So, and you know... And that is obviously a piece of information that kind of influences, well, how big do you want the vehicle to be, right? And maybe you you make a conscious decision, okay, we still want it to fit nine people, but that requires an entirely different logistics tale, which is an entirely different part of the Army, which also, I remind you, is an entirely different color of money, right? And so that's an example of how that happens, a very, I'm, you know, I'm simplifying it a lot here. Uh, but I think the problem is, is that decisions are oftentimes made in a vacuum, and there are second and third order effects just because the, or, the entity is so large. And I think a lot of times that just doesn't get taken into account. But it also takes forever. So you were talking about how this vehicle had been in, you know, in the works before a decade before you even got there. So imagining how things could get lost in the muddle, like what we originally wanted to what we're dealing with when you, you know, are sitting there on, on this part. It seems like it contributes to the confusion. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is, 
I think all large organizations face this kind of innovator's dilemma, right? It's kind of hard to do something new. Um, I think a big part of the process, why the a big part of the reason why the process is so convoluted and so cumbersome is that it's been designed to address every bad actor in the past, right? So all the things that people could do with government money that you don't want them to do, like steal it, buy junk, <laughs> I mean, you know, those things, right? Those things, light it on fire, light it on fire, <laughs> flush it down Even the toilet. Even here in national security, you know, put, here. put it in their own pocket. Um, you know, the acquisition process has basically developed a framework to keep people from doing that, which is good, but then that makes the whole process more cumbersome, right? Because they've tried to essentially eliminate any risk that someone could do something that they're not supposed to do with the money. Um, so here's another example. There was a big issue in the Navy uh, some years back about certain ship parts um, rusting and corroding in water. And right, it seems means, like you would want right, the parts to yes. work in water. Or you're, Generally, you're, should be waterproof. <laughs> right, your listeners, your listeners can't vessels. see you know all of our expressions, but it's kind of like a big duh, right? Like, of course, you want to at least try to pick metals that don't you know corrode with extended um, exposure to water, and you know duh. But of course, someone didn't do their job, and they got parts that were not made of the correct materials, and so as a response, instead of what a private company might do, which is make sure that people who are in charge of these decisions get trained and know what they're supposed to be looking for, they create a whole new protocol and an entirely new office to manage corrosion policy. And so now you have all these boxes that have to be checked to account for corrosion. And they apply to, I think my understanding was that at least at last count, they applied to everything. So even like t-shirts, I mean, you have to check a box saying that you followed the corrosion protocol. And there's literally an office in the building, uh, an office of corrosion policy. <laughs> and I am sure that that office, you know, and that is not to denigrate that office. I'm sure it is stocked with fine Americans who are like really focused on doing, you know, good things for the warfighter. But to me, that's a perfect example of like, you could have made the process itself better, but the instinct in the government is to kind of layer another process on top of that to make up for the fact that the first process didn't do what it should have done. Okay, this is scaring all of our young lawyer listeners right now. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Is, Think of the jobs potential here. Is there um, is there any uh, is there any evidence uh, that the you know Office of Corrosion Policy has? you know, you know, like been effective. And so I can't speak to that. Okay. Right. And again, you know, that's not to denigrate anyone oh, who's no, in no. that office. And I'm sure that they have done really excellent work. But to me, it's the kind of example right. of you could have fixed the underlying process, but you didn't. You created a whole new thing on top of it that was supposed to fix it. And it explains why it's so and it, it And then, and right. Long. And you do that a hundred times, right? Mm -hmm. And you end up, and probably a hundred is, being conservative, right? You do that a thousand times and you end up where we are now, which is all these people, all these processes, all these boxes that have to be checked um, just to make sure that nothing that has gone wrong before goes wrong again this time. So, but, you know, that obviously, I mean, I think people hearing this would be concerned, one, into the idea that anything protecting troops anywhere would um, not be built to a standard that would be suitable for, for its use. Um, how can the government control costs? You know, I think 
it's going to take a fundamental shift in thinking about these things. I think part of the problem is, is people are very afraid to take risks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little upside if you, I mean, it's not, when's the last time you opened the post and you saw the name of a person who saved the government money by doing something new or innovative? I'll suggest that section. We'll contact <laughs> the editor. <laughs> right? But you do open the post and see stories about people who wasted money, because they, you know, they did something maybe, you know, harmless or not harmless, but they did something that they maybe shouldn't have done. And I can get to an example of that later. Um, so, you know, basically there's very little upside for trying to do anything new and innovative. It's the, the path of least resistance is to do what's kind of laid out for you. And unfortunately, that path is one that, you know, costs money and takes time. Um, but there's really no incentive to shortcut it. If you're, you know, a program manager or a contractor, right? I mean, what what's the benefit in import? You you're not going to get that kind of recognition, which is sad. So, so that needs to be a part of policies is to create these incentives. Yeah, create and incentives. To identify for, um, places where money can be saved or processes that could be streamlined and yet protect. Right. Because and going back to um, you know the budget process and working with Congress, right? So if I put in I, right, the Defense Department, if I put in a budget for $100 million and I only spend $80 million, Congress doesn't go, oh, great, good job, right? I'm so glad you didn't spend as much money. They go, oh, when I come back the next year and say I need another $100 million, they go, no, you really only need 80 because that's what you spent last year, right? The incentive is to spend more so that when you're budgeted more, you're appropriated more. You know, the, the, unfortunately, that those misaligned incentives start all the way at the top. Wow. But the government has done, and the department has done some things uh, to try and stem the tide, right, to, to get at these problems. These are not new problems, right? Um, they have all of these different, they have the Defense Innovation Board. They have these, you know, each service has their innovation shop, right? So to get to your point of, okay, we see a problem, we're going to build up an office about around it. Right. Right. <laughs> um, That's the solution, right? Get, get an 06, put him in charge or her in charge of it. And I mean, and for a lot of problems, that is actually a very effective solution, mm-hmm. right? Find an 06 and put them in charge. But for this, you know, it's, it's beyond what the 06s can do. And it, do you think that there needs to be um, a cultural change? Do you think there needs to be like, what if if it's not standing up another office, or if it's not somebody you know taking a, a hacksaw to the um, to the protocol and accepting risk, right, of bad actors repeating? Right. Like, what's the answer? I don't know. Medal okay. of Honor. Medal of Honor. <laughs> yeah. Recognition. Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to align, you know, aligning incentives correctly, giving people a reason to take risks, not punishing them if they take a risk and it doesn't work out. Um, I think that's a big one, uh, and. You know, and I think it really comes back to risk, right? Like people have to, everyone's got to get more comfortable with risk. And, you know, to maybe to some extent, they're, the public and the media, right, also maybe bear some of that. And, you know, maybe you don't have a sensational story on the front of the post about why a hammer costs $375 when it really costs $75 and there was $300 that no one could account for. And so, you know, now the hammer costs $375, right, because the numbers have all got to add up. Um, that's a very simplistic way of saying it, and I don't want to. Su- I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that people should overlook things, but things happen, right? I mean, think about your own household budget. Like you try to be strict, but you know, Starbucks, right? Or hey, I wanted a muffin, or you know, those like little those little things happen. 
Or, you know, a big thing that happens all the time out in the field is you have very expensive equipment, right? Like not like, let's say like night vision goggles, right? This thing costs 10, 15,000 a pop. Hey, guys go out in the field, those things get lost, right? They get, the tank runs over them, someone drops it off a cliff, you know, it's too dangerous to go down there and retrieve it. But when you get back to home base, you've got to account, right? You've got to account for it. And so, and no one wants to get in trouble, and no one wants to get in trouble, but things happen, right? I mean, and that's just the reality. So going back to trying to understand the regulatory scheme from the perspective of a lawyer, what does a military acquisition lawyer do all day? So, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who work in the building on a lot of different parts related to the acquisition process. So at the top, you've got, um, you know, your senior political officials who oversee the process um, from a very, very macro level along with the Office of the General Counsels and the respective services in the DOD. And then you've got basically your, you know, your the people who are the real subject matter experts, right? The contracting lawyers who, you know, they know the DFARs backwards and forwards, and they're really the people that you go to. And let's let's see what the DFARs are for the uninitiated. Oh, sure. Those are the defense? Defense, federal acquisitions, like, acquisitions regulations. regulations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not to be confused with the federal acquisition regulations, the FARs, which is, I believe, based on the DFARs, um, but not exactly the same thing. So, you know... But either one of them, let's be frank, if it hit you over the head, you'd be dead. That's how big yes. and voluminous these things are. But they're they're massive. These are massive. We really take a subject matter expert. They really, really a do. A lot of jobs are available to young lawyers who are willing to dive in and learn this stuff well. Yes, but, you know, I think... part, But that can be part of the problem, too, right? Which is people lose sight of the forest for the trees. And so... I think a lot of the people Say who lose sight of the forest for the trees. But you know, you can you can get so steeped in knowing all the rules and regs, and what it really takes, I think, to have change and to have something different is people who can kind of take a step back from that and say, okay, as a, from a holistic standpoint, this is what's not working. About sure. It. Um, so I think so. It, it's interesting. You're out, kind of outlining your career. Um, like subject matter expertise is obviously valuable, right? Because Absolutely. The you know and the, highly undervalued in this town. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the regulations uh, embody the policy that you know for whatever reason the leadership has come up with in order to you know uh, um, implement its uh, its acquisition program. So the regulations are important and people have to know them. But you also have to have a visionary who is willing to say, hey, maybe we don't need this regulation, or maybe we need a different different kind of regulation right. or a different kind of structure. Absolutely. So let's ask a question here, which is, you know, sometimes obviously the process, um, you know, the DFAR sets all sorts of standards for things and processes for acquisitions, but, uh, you know, sometimes those things go awry. And you've mentioned some of the scandals. We've heard about, like, an $1,800 hammer, a $100,000 toilet. I'd like to see that one if it's not diamond encrusted. <laughs> um, but there have been... Um, there's been a reportage on a lot of scandals, and I wonder what happens when that goes wrong. Yeah, you know, sometimes it can be something simple like, you know, a hundred binoculars got lost and we need to come up with the paperwork to account for that, right? Because no one wants to get in trouble for having lost a hundred binoculars on his or her watch. Um, sometimes it is more nefarious, right? People lining their pockets, people taking bribes, stuff like we saw the Fat Leonard scandal with the Navy, uh, where people were giving out uh, confidential or classified information um, in exchange for, you know, all kinds of unsavory uh, kickbacks, let's call them, right? 
So the process can go <laughs> wrong in basically a lot of ways. I think the what I've talked about is how the process can go wrong just from a communications and consensus building exercise within the building in terms of acquisition of major weapon systems and what do we want those weapon systems to do and things like the Air Force's stealth uh, fighter, which everyone found out China had the blueprints to, right? I mean, I think that came out about in the, came out in the news about 10 years ago. The Air Force had spent literally hundreds of millions, of, if not billions of dollars developing this new stealth fighter. And it turns out that China had um, gotten access to uh, the, the technical, you know, the technical underpinnings of how we were using that. So, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong basically at all levels in the process. Um, but, you know, that is true for any organization or entity, right? Like people, people are people, they're humans and they make mistakes. And uh, sometimes things don't go according to plan and you multiply that, those facts across an entity as large as the Department of Defense, which I think is pretty much the largest organization on the planet. I mean, singular mm-hmm. organization, right, on the planet. Um, and yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find a lot, of, a lot of things go wrong. But a lot of things go right, too. Uh, we, you know, we equip the warfighter with the absolute best in technology. Um, the world, everyone is clamoring to buy our stuff, as the president very helpfully note, <laughs> noted the other day, um, with respect to Saudi Arabia, right? They want to buy our weapons. People want to buy our weapons because they're the best. And we spend a lot of money developing and procuring them. Can you contextualize for us, like, the amount of, um, of uh, money that's wasted or lost versus the money that's effectively spent? I'd say, you know, if you could really tally it up, they're probably the amount of waste is probably something like 1% or 2%. I mean, I honestly mm-hmm. feel that way. Uh, but, you know, the problem is, is when you're talking about an almost trillion dollar budget, that's, that's you can still get money. Right, that's still significant mm-hmm. money. And that is money that could obviously be paying for a lot of other things, right? Um, you know, you can still get a lot of really eye-popping figures. Uh, even, you know, back to the binoculars example, right? Some poor E4 loses 10 binoculars on his patrol. <laughs> you know, that's like $150,000, right. right? That's multiples of his salary. Um yeah, the, the, that, that makes headlines, and that's what you end up seeing. Uh, and you weren't an acquisitions lawyer when you worked on this in the Army. Could you talk about your specific job there? Sure. So when I was in the Army, I was uh, the special assistant to the assistant secretary of the Army for ATNL and her deputy. And her name is Heidi Hsu, and she is really a phenomenal American. She had been a radars engineer at Raytheon, um, and she was highly technical and really, really, really well qualified for her job. Uh, my job was to basically help her manage the non-technical <laughs> aspects of her job, um, since I'm not an engineer, which is basically being responsive to the Army's leadership, being responsive to the leadership of DOD as a whole, being responsive to the White House and to the Obama administration, of which uh, she and I were both part of, and being responsive to Congress and stakeholders there. Uh, so I looked out for her interests in those discussions, as well as the interests of the Obama administration at large. Um, and tried to make sure that, you know, to the extent that we could, everyone was on the same page and everyone was moving forward with what uh, what the administration wanted to do and what the Army wanted to do with respect to the weapons that it buys. Okay. Um, so can, can you tell us about a re- an interesting issue that you worked on um, while you're working for Ms. Shu? Sure. There were, I mean, there were so many, right? I think the, the most interesting cases were always the cases where cases where you're trying to buy something, what they call off the shelf, right? So instead of trying to develop your own thingamajig, you know, you can decide, oh, there's actually better things out in the private market. 
And we could just go buy that instead of trying to develop our own. We don't necessarily have the expertise to do that. I think that's really huge now with software, right? I mean, I think anyone will tell you that the best software engineers do not work for the United States military. Unfortunately, they work for Silicon Valley. Um, and the military is going to have to find a way to access those people, right, um, if they want to have access to that talent. Which brings me to something you were talking about, new offices earlier, but one of another one of my old bosses, uh, Ash, Dr. Ash Carter, who was the 25th Secretary of Defense, you know, he started the DIUX out in Silicon Valley to give um, access to funding uh, for defense startups for exactly that reason, right? So the, the most interesting and challenging uh, things were always the ones where the right answer was really kind of clear, uh, but getting all the stakeholders involved to come around to that answer, being the right answer, um, always very interesting conversation. Gently put, let me say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but you've also worked on the other side. So you advised a startup that was trying to develop goods to sell to the government. Um, so talk I to did. us about those challenges. Skolans has recently put out a book. Many of our members have put out a book on public-private partnerships. What were some of the challenges that a startup would have, and what kinds of advice would you be called upon to deliver? Sure. So, you know, um, the challenge is really just to break in, right? The defense business is really dominated by a handful of firms, and really the all the things that we've been talking about here, uh, particularly the compliance costs, um, really drive overhead costs for those firms, right? So because you know, you're spending public money and there has to be transparency and accountability and how that money's spent, uh, that creates a lot of basically paperwork that has to be done. Uh, and we're all lawyers. We all know that doing a job and documenting how much time you've spent doing that job are two different things. Um, and that second thing takes time as well. And that second thing <laughs> takes time and, and personnel um, and people who have to get paid. And, you know, those are overhead costs that the firms then have to carry, uh, and they can really be hit over the head for not knowing the details of all the rules and regulations that they're supposed to be following. Uh, it ends up being kind of a cottage industry for consultants, uh, and that just becomes like sort of a cost of doing business for any small startup. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the other big thing is that there are a lot of risks on the government end, too, right? Uh, what was the old saying? No one ever got fired for buying IBM. Right. I mean, that applies here. I mean, you don't want to be that person who's in the po that program manager who's in the post for wasting six hundred million dollars because you bought a widget from some unknown upstart company. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it's a very uphill battle. Uh, I was trying to help them navigate the legal requirements of what they needed to do from a compliance standpoint and then also try to provide some strategic advice on dealing with the department and with Congress. And so my advice in that respect would be, you know, they should, if you're a small startup trying to get into that space, uh, you want to try to partner with the big guys and not just the big, big guys, right? So not the, just the Lockheeds and the Boeings of the world, but those mid-tier companies uh, that are trying to really break into the top. And the other thing to understand is it's not the same as private industry, right? You know, the rules are different and you just can't ignore the political side of the equation. Uh, I feel like a lot of companies, unfortunately, think, oh, I've got the best widget, I've got the best product, and that's going to carry the day. And unfortunately, um, it's sad, but that's just not the case. You've got to be able to con get consensus, get stakeholders uh, invested in your product and invested in knowing that you have the best thing and that the military should be buying your thing. Um, the other thing I would say to people uh, who are doing this is be careful about where you take investment money. 
the and again this goes back to DIUX and why Dr. Carter wanted to have that is because it's hard to get funding for these kinds of businesses and the real funding right now in the US is all out in Silicon Valley in, in tech venture capital. But so, you know, a lot of small startups I think try, you know, they've got to make payroll, right? They've got to continue to operate and it's easier to take foreign investment, but that can really come back to bite you when you're trying to sell to the US government. Um and that's not something that's unmanageable. You can you can have board of directors, you know, structure and processes in place to to uh, control for the fact that you've got foreign investment. Um, but you've got to be conscious and strategic about how you set that up. And CFIUS and DSS, Defense Defense Security Services, and CFIUS, which is uh, part of Commerce, and I cannot remember Committee on Foreign Committee Investment on foreign in investment. the United Thank States. You. We um, had a podcast on it, so you yep, can go and look look did. back if you and want to know more a, stuff. We yeah, had a great but, program at the conference on it too. But CFIUS and DSS are taking a really hard look now at um, outside investment um, because there have been so many reports of espionage through the industrial base. Uh, and so that's something I would caution any small company. And so right now, your job at the American Banking Association is not related to national security. How does your background in national security inform your current lawyering? Sure. So, you know, the big thing about um, the the Pentagon is that it's just a really large organization, right? It happens to be a really large organization that has an exceptional mission and exceptional people. Uh, but kind of the same uh, skills that help you do that uh, or help you be successful there, definitely help you be successful pretty much anywhere else, especially in my role now at a trade uh, organization. Um, part of it is just kind of herding cats um, and building consensus, as uh, folks in town like to say. And those are definitely skills that I learned working in national security. I think the big thing that working in national security gives you is uh, ability, because the stakes are so high, right? Uh, because you're talking about lives on the line, the security of our nation on the line, it helps you focus in on what matters. And, you know, office politics are kind of everywhere. Uh, but I I like to think that, there are, uh, that it's easier to sort of put those things aside um, to say, okay, this is what's right, right? This is what we need to be doing. You know, people's lives are on the line. Uh, you know, folks aren't trusting us with their with their with their young sons, their young daughters. Um, they're putting they're they're risking everything, and it's our job to do what's right by them. Well, Diane, it's been a pleasure to have you here tonight. We hope that we can have you back to do the podcast to talk about your other Pentagon job. Sure. I really appreciate you all listening to us tonight. This has been National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you back very soon, and we hope that you'll join us uh, at some of the conferences that are coming up in our events, uh, one of which is on December 4th, and it will feature John Carlin, the former Assistant Attorney General for NSD, who has basically he's written a new book, um, which you may want to take a look at, the premise of which is that we're already in uh, basically a digital and cyber war um, and that we have such embedded vulnerabilities at this point in time in the sort of uh, global digital economy um, that we are unprepared to respond to. So that's going to be an exciting event. Hey, we hope to see you soon. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. And you can always visit our website at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. See you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.